Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Welcome to our special Good Friday episode. Today we are reading John chapter 20, verses 23 to 42, the account of the crucifixion. The intermingling here of cruelty and love, of care and humiliation, creates such a rich and complicated story. And mostly we just try to hold it all. We raise up the way that even on the cross, Jesus is helping his people find new ways to love each other. We hold tenderly the fact that after he has died, his body is afforded the honor that was absent in his last hours of life. And we wonder what it means for John to cite scripture about how God protects the righteous in this moment, even this one. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I am good on this Good Friday episode. It is a good, it is a Good Friday episode. Yes, today we are special episoding. Reading John chapter 19, verses 23 to 42, which is, there's been a lot of lead up to this. There has been. This and has I guess been, this is still lead up to something else, but yeah, yeah. It is, yes. and But yeah, I've said this a couple of times in the podcast, but I have actually, as much as I did not really look forward to the long lingering in John 18 and 19, when I saw it on the narrative lectionary calendar, I actually, this has been a good experience for me excruciatingly walk through the crucifixion text. It's not over yet. We still have a have yeah. another episode to go here in yeah. anticipation of Easter, but it has definitely, we have not been rushing toward Easter. Yeah, right. We can't jump to the end. We can't jump yeah. to the end. And we had sort of a pre-conversation about like, is it appropriate to chit-chat on Good Friday? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes we yeah. like chit-chat a little bit at the beginning. And we, and that I don't remember how we got to this question, but we landed on this really good question that is definitely appropriate, and it's this. Why is Good Friday good when this is the day that Jesus dies? Yeah. What you got? You know, there's a few responses that people give, and I don't actually know which one is right or whether it actually matters which one is right. The sort of theological response is that the Friday is good because it is the day, you know, we've been, this whole time, we've been kind of talking about how, according to John's gospel, that Jesus's salvation for humankind, it begins, you know, begins on Good Friday, right? It is it is in the crucifixion and resurrection taken together. Yeah. And so in that sense, while the crucifixion is horrible, what it sets in motion is the, in the Christian tradition, the, the greatest good that is possible, which is the redemption of humankind. So I think you could think of it good that way. Yeah. Some people think that Good Friday was once God's Friday and that it's sort of just gotten shifted in the language. Mm-hmm. So it was like God's Friday has become Good Friday. I don't think like a game of telephone sort yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. 
Even if historically that's true, I find that really not very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, that's fair. I guess the other way that you can make sense of it is just like in the sense that all holy days are good days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the Jewish community, we call all the holidays Yantif in Yiddish, or Yom Tov is what Yantif comes from, which just means a, a good day. Yeah. And it's the sad holidays, and it's the happy holidays. It's just like an elevated, that day has an elevated status. Yeah. To me, I think that's probably the one that is the most accessible and reasonable, is just to say that the, the holy days are good days. And I and coming out of the Jewish tradition, I like that a lot, Yom Tov. And this just is specifying the day. It's a good. It's not just a good day, it's a good Friday. In addition to Good Friday, there's also a less well-known Good Wednesday. Wednesday before Easter. That is the sum total of what I know about Good Wednesday. Of what you know about Good Wednesday. Did I tell you, Bobby, that I was having a conversation? I overheard a conversation. I wasn't in the conversation. And someone else was explaining the Christian holidays or like the progression of time leading up to Easter. And they said that Jesus was crucified on Ash Wednesday, (laughs) in which case it is a really long time. Time of suffering and Good Friday would most certainly be a blessed relief. Yeah. Like he was crucified like from Ash Wednesday until Good Friday? I mean, the person was confused. The person was clearly confused. The person was confused. You also had a friend who wanted to read the Gospel of Mike one time, right? (laughs) Okay, but this friend who, yes, the Gospel of Mike (laughs) was... Yeah, there was a question about what was in the Gospel of Mike. I, I have, I don't know. We'll read that one next year. Yeah. Yeah. That's the extra year in the narrative lectionary cycle. <laughs> Leap year. Okay, but for today, our text is, is not funny. This is a serious text. It is a very serious text, yeah. Yeah. We're picking up just exactly where we left off. So I'm reading from the NRSV, starting in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic— Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. The CEB adds the line right there, That's what the soldiers did. Does the NRSV have that line? It does, but it's in 25 in my translation. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. It does seem like it should be in 24. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Agreed. I don't know. I don't know how to account for the uh, versification difference there, but it clearly goes with what came before. Clearly goes with what came before, yes. Okay, this I think comes from the realm of what should be obvious, but it took me a, a moment to sort of realize it. B- being crucified is not like being electrocuted or right. shot. Like, he has been crucified, mm-hmm. but he is not dead. That's right. Yeah, I think that right. can be, especially the the NRSV, the, using the had crucified Jesus, makes it sound like we've been building up to it the crucifixion. Like it's done. And then it sounds yeah. like it's over. Mm-hmm. No, crucifixion, you're right. I mean, it was an extraordinarily long process. People sometimes hung on crosses for days before mm-hmm. they died. This was part of the cruelty of crucifixion. And so what this means, you're exactly right, when they say they had crucified Jesus, it means we should now envision Jesus hanging on the cross. Yeah. But he is not he is not dead yet. It yeah. is also interesting, like, you know, sometimes 
like I'm thinking about that film, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. where it it lingers in the details of how painful the process mm-hmm. of crucifixion must have been. And I mean, and it mm-hmm. must have been. But John's gospel is not at no, all interested in that. Not at all. He goes from he's about to be crucified to he has been crucified. And you yep. you actually skip the whole actual crucifixion part. Yeah. Yeah. No, John does not pull out that aspect of it at all. Yeah. I you know, when I when I first was reading it, I had this question in my mind: like, is it possible to read the soldier's interest in his clothing as in any way, like, uh, expressing honor, I think I came down on no. But have you considered that question, or does that just seem like coming out of coming out of crazy land? Well, I don't know. I don't know that it's coming out of crazy land, but I don't have anywhere to connect it. Like, I can't even get started thinking about that. So I'm just curious in what way, like, why why I'm thinking about that? Yeah, because you usually when you think about things, it's because there's something that's caught your attention in the text. And I just don't have any place to hang hang my interpretation. Well, I can tell you it's in my mind, but it's but it's not here in this text. So okay. what's in my mind is another story from another gospel. I don't know if John reports it, but we didn't read it in John, of a, a woman who touches Jesus's robe. Hmm. Do you remember that story? And you know, it's kind of like a gutsy thing for her to do, yeah. but it, you know, but she is healed in the way that she wants to. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of these sort of like mob scenes of the famous people and you want their, you want the sweaty t-shirt they wore at a concert or you want some, you know, piece of what was theirs because, because you ha- hold them in high esteem. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, that story appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The mm. original version of that story is in Mark chapter 5. and But it doesn't occur in John's Gospel. Mm. But it is interesting, the significance of the tunic. And John takes us, like, takes the time to tell us that it was seamless. Yeah. One piece. And so there's, I mean, presumably that means you can't divide it without mm-hmm. ripping it. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting to think, like, why would you want a ripped tunic anyway. Yeah. But there is something there about, I don't know if they're respectful of it or if it's just impractical to rip up a tunic. Right, right. But there's something about this tunic, which, you know, it's Jesus's tunic and also a seamless tunic. Mm -hmm. It seems like that they have already divided, like there's four soldiers and they've already divided the other stuff divided them into four shares, one for each soldier. Yeah. And then what's left now is this tunic. And so there's like one more thing than there are soldiers. Right. And so that's why they're, and you know, it's all, in the interpretation of John, it's trying to fulfill the scripture from Psalm 22. Right. Divided their clothes and cast lots. Like, why do you have to cast lots if there's an equal share for everybody? So this is how John gets us there. Yeah. Yeah, I um okay, I have a couple thoughts about what you just said. And one is I think sort of un- undoing undoing my own thought that maybe this could be an expression of honor. The fact that Jesus is still alive. Yeah. That changes the equation for me. Yeah. Like 
he is, you know, as they're acting as though he doesn't need his clothing for dignity or for comfort. Not that there is yeah. much dignity or comfort left when you are hanging on the cross, but they're acting like he's not in his body anymore. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, you know, in, in my own mind, I tend to think of this as to taking spoils or yeah. what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like taking a trophy of yeah. an execution. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard terrible stories of people taking souvenirs from lynchings in the United yeah. States. Yes. And so, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's something along those lines. That's exactly how I would read it. James mm-hmm. Cone, you know, has very famously made that connection. I mean, others have as well, but he's mm-hmm. in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, has made that connection very clearly about if modern Americans want to understand the crucifixion, we gotta talk, we've got to talk about lynchings. Mm-hmm. And I think that taking of prizes, so to speak, yeah. from a lynching and taking the, the spoils of Jesus, I think, that, I, think those, I think that's the right, probably the right way to think about it. it is, yeah. It's humiliating. Jesus is still there, alive, yeah. in excruciating pain, one, one assumes. And they're taking his stuff and his prized possession. Yeah, this is a nice cloak. You know, it's, it's yeah. well-made, woven in one piece. Yeah. And so they're seeing who gets to keep it. Josephus has something about the high priest wearing a seamless tunic. Oh, interesting. So that I, I mean, my... Uh, my study Bible, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, has you know just raises the question. You know, it says they don't know if this was just a way that tunics were made. Maybe we, you know, we don't want to overread it, but right. there's but there's the possibility that there was some extra symbolism in that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I, I was not familiar with that tradition, but I, that adds an interesting layer. If nothing else, it seems like a nice tunic. Yes, and then maybe it has a maybe it's indicating something about the holiness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. One thing that's probably worth saying is the the Romans did crucify people naked. You often mm-hmm. see Jesus depicted as wearing like a loincloth or something like that, and, and maybe that was the yeah. case. But yeah. it was intended to be humiliating. And so I, I think we imagine that they have stripped Jesus and the others who are crucified with him. They're hanging naked on the cross, exposed to the world, and and so this dividing of their stuff is is very much insulting. The normal means of crucifixion was driving nails through the hands and the feet. We don't get an image of that here in John, but we're we are gonna get in the text where Thomas sees the risen Jesus that he touches mm-hmm. that holds in Jesus' hands. And so it seems to be the case that Jesus has been nailed to a cross here, although the text does not narrate that. Mm. It is interesting still to me that. The degree to which John is not interested yeah. in that horror of the Roman practice of crucifixion. It was a horrible thing, and John doesn't spend any time with it. Yep. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about this introductory section, or should we move on? I think, I think let's move on. Okay. So we noted already that this first part of verse 25 in my translation is part of verse 24 in your translation. We don't know why. I'll just read my translation the way it is. So I'm picking up in 25. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I really actually like reading that. That's what the soldiers did at the beginning of that, because it draws Mm -hmm. that sharp contrast between that's what the soldiers did. Here's what Jesus's people did. Mm, yeah. The way that you read that, I thought was really striking. Yeah, that is, that is a really nice, it does set up like such a contrast in like, what is the scene that is happening around Jesus on the cross? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, in terms of the scene, who is standing here? What are you, who are the people that, the soldier, we're done with the soldiers. The soldiers yeah. we've talked about. Who all is, who all do you picture? It's a little confusing. The, so we've, so the soldiers are there, they're dividing up his clothes. And then we've Mm -hmm. got these other folks who are also there in the other gospels. The, it's not narrated that the people were this close to the cross. Yeah. Yeah. In Mark's gospel, it's like, oh yeah, there were some women watching from far away and the men are totally gone. Yeah. Here, it seems like they're right there. They must be right there. Jesus is talking to them. That's right. Yeah. They stood near the cross. So we get Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And there is some question in the syntax about whether Mary the wife of Clopas is Jesus' mother's sister, Jesus' aunt, or whether there's, mm-hmm. whether there's three people here or four. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that John does not ever name Jesus's mother. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it would be awkward if her name were Mary and then her sister's name were also Mary. (laughs) Like, that would be really confusing. (laughs) Yes. Or very convenient, I guess, if you were their parents. Like, Mary. It does seem to have been a popular name. (laughs) Yeah, no, it absolutely. Everyone there was named Mary. Yeah. So the possibilities are that Jesus's mother is not remembered as being named Mary in the Gospel of John. Mm Mm-hmm. Or that there is an unnamed mother, an unnamed mother's sister, and then two Marys. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it I don't know that it really matters. I just think it's kind of an interesting detail. Yeah. Mary Magdalene, we have not met to this point in John's gospel. No. And she's gonna end up being the one who encounters first encounters the risen Jesus on Easter, spoiler alert. And so she she just pops in right here and then suddenly becomes a central figure in the story. Yeah. That's so interesting here at this, like, most traumatic and dramatic moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also the disciple whom Jesus loved. You were asking who was there, and I sort of forgot that guy, but yeah. Well, but it makes sense that you forgot him, because the text, he he seems a little bit like an afterthought at first. He winds up being important. You know, Jesus speaks to him, but— I, yeah, I don't know if he's standing apart from the women or or what's happening, but it's interesting that he's not listed as being there, but then becomes part of the scene. That's right, yeah. We we have talked about the disciple whom Jesus loved before. Mm-hmm. We are not sure who he is. There are arguments about that. Some people think he is John, the gospel writer. Mm-hmm. Some people think he is Lazarus, who was resurrected from the dead. There are arguments about that. It's very difficult to settle it in any kind of meaningful way. Mm -hmm. If you read him as Lazarus, it adds a whole interesting texture to this story in which the one who has been dead and resurrected is watching this one who is about to die. 
But I don't know that I don't know how far you can dig into that when you know the text doesn't really invite us to dig too far into it. I guess. Are there? Are you aware of Christian traditions that say you should read yourself as the beloved disciple? Oh, that seems like a very like I'm thinking of like the Jewish idea that like all Jewish souls were present at Sinai, yeah. like all you know in these sort of transitional, not transitional. Well, transitional, yes, but these big moments. Do Christians do that or? Not really. Well, you know, I don't know a direct tradition that is that way with the beloved disciple. Although I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting way to read it. I'm surely somebody must have some tradition. Yeah, right. Must have, Whenever have I would ask way. in graduate school, has anyone ever said before I <laughs> yeah. before I finish the question, the professor is like, "Yes, someone <laughs> yeah. has said that." <laughs> but I'm thinking about the old hymn. There's an old hymn where you there when they crucified my Lord, mm. and the implication is you should have been like. You saw what happened, you Christian singing this hymn. And so I think that's, you know, I don't know that I don't know that there's an explicit theology in the way that there might be in your tradition of we were all there. But I do think there is a sense that Christians read ourselves into this story. We know it, yeah. we can see it in our heads. And so in that yeah. sense we were all there. I like yeah. that. And then we get this just really striking instruction, set of instructions that that come from Jesus to his mother and then also to the disciple. And I have to tell you, when I first read his instruction to his mother, woman, here is your son, I I thought he was talking about himself, mm-hmm. like sort of re-inhabiting, fully inhabiting that relationship, that his work on earth has necessitated that he step back from a little bit in order to do other things, you know, to sort of reclaim that. But that's not what's happening at all. Well, you know, I've never thought that's what's happening, but it actually is really interesting in the narrative flow because, I mean, he sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and then he says to his mother, here is your son. And in in the narrative flow, you're exactly right. It is not clear what he's saying, which to me means, you know, I like to do this thing where, and John likes to do this thing where where things have multiple reference. And so I think it's actually possible. I mean, the wooden, sort of more plain sense reading of it, as you're pointing to is, hey, there's your son right there, the beloved disciple, that guy's your son. Yeah. But I think it's possible when you've got Jesus, who actually is her son, and the beloved disciple who's about to be her son, and you say, here is your son, to think of it as referencing in both directions, because I am mm. your son, he is your son, or something. I, I think yeah. there's something there. Yeah. I think there's something there. The other thing that. that is worth, like, I'm just paying attention to this now, but do you remember how much we talked about Hineni last fall? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The yeah. word here in Greek, ide, is the, is that's the word that gets translated in Greek from Hineni. Mm, Behold, that. it's that same yeah. thing. So I don't know if there's a, I don't know if we want to connect that back to Hineni, Hine, mm. in the in our yeah. Hebrew Bible scriptures. But the connection is there, sort of waiting. The connection waiting is there, made. waiting. And I, so I have two thoughts thinking about it. One of them is related to the that the first one is. You know, here, here is your son. Like both the both the hine, hineni, and the son. 
that together, you know, we we talked a long time ago about the th- three times that Hineni is said in the story of the binding of Isaac. Yeah. And so that seems like it could be a a pullback to that. But I just always read that word as this like like flashpoint of presence. Like in this moment, you are like fully, completely present to whoever you're talking to, to God yeah. or to the person you're in conversation with. And like your your selfhood is so bound up in them that there are just no barriers. Like it's almost this fantasy land. When do humans interact yeah. with each other or with God and not have any barriers? But that's the, that is hine to me is that, yeah. you know, that full, complete openness that's, that's really beautiful to read into this moment. So to me, to adding that, what you're saying there with the question you asked previously about who's the referent here, you know, one way of reading it is the first move in this text is Jesus saying, mother, here I am, yeah. your son, fully present to you in this moment of my death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we remember back in the washing of the feet where it says Jesus loved them to the end. And like the, the fullness of the expression of Jesus's love is all the way to the end. I think that connection is really, really rich and beautiful. I am fully here and present to you, loving you, even in this moment when my life in the flesh is about to end. Mm-hmm. And then when he says, behold, here is, or says to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, then there's this sort of shifting which says, I'm fully present here now, but I'm not, in just a minute, I'm not going to be fully present here anymore. And so then you two need to be fully present to each other. Yeah. So there's a a shifting of immediacy of relationship that is taking place in in this moment of crucifixion. Do you know the poem Epitaph by Marriott Malloy? I don't know it. I'm not going to read you the whole poem now, but I'll post it on, I'll on you know the Facebook page for Bible Worm or something. It's often used as a prelude to our prayers for the dead in the Jewish community. Mm. But the last line of it is, when all that's left of me is love, give me away. Mm. And the whole poem is this, this idea that, you know, if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street. Like if you need to hug me, hug someone else. Honor, you know, yeah. like give the love that you feel and the care that you want to give me to, to other people walking this earth with you, and that just feels so resonant with, with this instruction that Jesus is giving here. I love that so much, Amy, and it reminds me of Jesus's instruction back there in John thirteen: "Love one another as I have loved you." Yeah. And so, in this way that I'm loving you all the way to the end, the now it is your task, your responsibility, yeah. your invitation yeah. to love each other yeah. in my absence. That, I love yes. that connection. Yeah, right. I, I, I love you even in my suffering and in your suffering as you watch my death, you need to love also. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think we need to move on soon, but is there anything else? This is just such a beautiful section of verses. Is there anything else you want to say here before we press forward? I think the only other thing is that very last line, from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Mm -hmm. 
And so there is this sort of affective aspect of love, which we've been talking about, love each other. Mm. There is also a material dimension of love, which is here is a woman who has lost her son and she needs protection. She needs a place to live. She needs someone to look out for her well-being. And so there is both the affective dimension here, I think, and also clearly this more material idea Mm -hmm. about loving. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that. I love that. Okay. I'm going to pick up then in verse 28. Okay. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on the branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is so striking how different these last moments are than the other gospels. Oh my goodness. There's mm-hmm. no crying out, why have you forsaken me? There's, I don't know, it just seems so. It even says like he wasn't really thirsty. He just said he was thirsty because <laughs> he was fulfilling the scripture. Yeah. Like here's the last thing I have to do before I die. I have to say, I am thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the three Gospels that we've read the last three years, in Mark's Gospel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke's Gospel, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Mm. Here, I'm thirsty. It is finished. Yeah. Very different interpretations of the same events, which have theological significance for the, for the writers. Yeah. When when you look back at the scriptural reference that is being fulfilled here, it's from Psalm 69. And it's this person who is suffering deeply from like a social ostracization, is that the word? And and like onslaught from Mm -hmm. other people because of their belief in God. So like in the in the psalm it's like a form of torture like instead of food and water I get vinegar and gall. Yeah. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Oh, I guess it doesn't say who gave him the wine soaked sponge. I was picturing people who were sort of supporters. That's an interesting question, Amy. In, in the CEB it says so the soldiers soaked a sponge in it. But the NRSV mm. leaves Leaves it's vague. It just says they put the sponge full of wine. Yeah. I think the CEB has made an interpretive move there to say we need to supply an antecedent to the third person plural verb. Yeah. And so they clarify that it's soldiers. But in clarifying, they might have actually overstepped an interpretive line, which is kind of interesting. Well, I mean, maybe it's. I mean, so let me just ask the question. Do you read that this whole exchange as, as an act of mercy or torture? I mean, so absent the psalm reference, asking yeah. for vinegar, you know, vinegar was, or vinegar wine, and in Latin, posca, was a drink that was used in the Roman army. And actually soldiers used it to quench their thirst. And so okay. in that sense, in the sort of, most plain sense, it is just Jesus actually saying, I'm thirsty. And then people, somebody giving him yeah. what they give people who, they who are thirsty yeah. in under, you know, difficult okay. conditions. 
your connection to Psalm 69, which is, I mean, clearly the right connection in terms of like what scripture is being fulfilled. Whenever there's a references to Psalms in these texts, it's always a question for me of like, how much of the Psalm do you read yes. into I what's happening right. here? And in this yeah. case, I don't really, I don't really know. It is a little curious to me that after these soldiers have like stripped him of his clothes and are about to go around breaking people's legs, that he says he's thirsty and they're like, oh, we should get you a drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I, I guess that's what's happening. And it may also be possible to read it as, you know, I mean, Jesus has been humiliated and the sol- if the, especially if the soldiers are the ones that are doing this. But Jesus asks for it and he drinks it. And so it's hard to imagine. Like he doesn't say, hey, don't give me that wine. That's insulting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know. I- I'd like a Shirley Temple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I don't quite know. But it, I mean, the sort of mixture here in this whole scene of the humiliation and degradation of Jesus and also the glorification of Jesus in the process like it's a complicated thing to get your head around, and in some ways, the fact that the vinegar can function in both of those ways kind of ma- That's makes true. it interesting. Makes it like the ideal mm-hmm. thing to stick in there mm-hmm. because we are exactly at that sort of inflection point between those two really different ways of, you know, people understanding Jesus or treating Jesus mm-hmm. at this moment. I'm also the way that you describe the soldiers there has got me thinking about. You know, we've had a couple conversations along the way about how people who are carrying out their sort of role in the structure and they're capable right here of something that maybe is actually a small kindness in the midst of this other thing that they're doing, which is horrifying. Yeah. And the sort of disconnect there. And you were talking about moral injury and the way people cope with things. And there's something, I think there's something to dig into there about how the soldiers, even in the even in the midst of this horrible thing they are doing, mm. still are able to express this humanity and not to recognize the cognitive break that there actually is between the two kinds of things that they're doing. I really like that. I really like the level of complexity that that brings to this whole this whole thing, not just for Jesus' supporters, but for the people who are carrying out this crucifixion. Mm-hmm. You want to move on, or is there anything else you would like to offer on this section? I think it's worth just asking the question of, you know, Jesus's final words, it is completed in the CEB, Mm. it is finished in the NRSV. And the question of what is the it there, I think is an interesting Mm. one. And what what exactly does finished mean? Do you have thoughts about that? God, that is such a good question. I wish I'd asked you that question, <laughs> <Bobby>. <laughs> what's in you? What's in your head as you think about that? I mean, one of the things that I do when I run into something like this that has multiple possibilities is I just say, well, let's name some possibilities. Yeah. And then you could say, well, that one doesn't seem right. Or you could say, like, oh, well, it could, it could contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. The word that's being used there is teleo in Greek, which is telos, which can mean finished, but it can also mean completed or fulfilled, like it has reached Mm -hmm. its ultimate goal. And so Mm -hmm. when you read it that way, like I think the the plain sense is my life is over. This is the same word, by the way, that was used back when Jesus said, I, uh, he loved them, or John says Jesus loved them to the end. Mm 
that word was also mm. telos. And so this is, I think, connecting back to that. So I think you could read like my life is over. I think you could read it as the mission that was given to me by mm-hmm. God is mm-hmm. over. I think you mm-hmm. could read it as the purpose of the incarnation has mm-hmm. been completely fulfilled. And mm-hmm. and now maybe there's something that comes next, but the, the purpose of the word becoming flesh is has yeah. come to completion. Does, does any of those sort of stick out as more reasonable? I mean, what I'm what I'm thinking about as you're talking is I'm I'm wondering the word that's used, telos, is it similar to the word like shalom, shlema, like that has this it, it which doesn't mean end, but it means like completion or you know, you probably have heard shalom as peace, but it's peace in the sense of like fullness and full fullness, really. Mm-hmm. Is it that kind of that kind of word, or is there more of a sense of fullness, but like there's an end? There's more of like a, a timeline in it because I don't think shalom has a timeline. Yeah, I mean, I I get what you're saying, and the, I think in that sense there is a relationship of like the sense of wholeness or completion. Things are yeah. the way that they should be. Yeah, shalom has a leaning into sort of peacefulness. Yeah. Telos has more like. There was a goal toward which we were moving and we have reached the goal. There's a sense of directionality to it. Yep, yep. In a way that Shalom I don't think quite has. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I tend to think that all of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I've got to read it as something beyond like his life, more like the, the incarnation or the, yeah, the, the purpose of Jesus walking on earth in a body. Mm Mm-hmm with the humans, you know, that that has, that has reached its fullness. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I, I actually think all of those can kind of, kind of go together, but I mean, his yeah. life is over. Yeah. Yes. And in yes. that sense, his incarnation is over. Yeah. And also Jesus has had a purpose, which has been to come and demonstrate God's love to the world and not to lose any of those who have been given to him. And so I, I think you're exactly right that it also has that sense of I, I have done what I have been sent here to do and yeah. nothing that was given to me. We talked about that all the way back in Isaiah, I think in Advent, the word that goes out from, from the Lord accomplishes its purpose. And I think Jesus is saying here, I have accomplished my purpose. There's, there's nothing that remains to be done. I said I was thirsty. I got the vinegar. That was the last <laughs> box. It was the last thing. We're done. It's all been, it's all been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Should we move on? Yes. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, They will look on the one whom they have pierced. 
the question that is <laughs> is most pressing for me, Bobby, is not about breaking the legs. Oh, interesting. Although maybe we should, maybe we should. I mean, that, I think that detail has been in other gospels, and so we've talked about it. It actually little, hasn't. This John's little, the only one who tells it? us this detail. Yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting. And he lingers over it for a weirdly long time. Yeah, given how quickly some of the other stuff goes in here, he does he mm-hmm. does linger over it. Yeah, like we didn't even get the crucifixion narrated at all. We just got it. Here, here it comes. Oh, it's already happened. And then here we get, you know, five verses about the breaking of legs. Yeah. Which, again, I know I just feel like such a broken record saying this, but good God in heaven. This is just so painful to read the Mm -hmm. layers of pain upon pain and humiliation upon humiliation. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to even hold it in my mind for the duration of the time we're in the story. It's really overwhelming. On a practical level, the breaking of the legs is interesting because it is both exceedingly cruel and also at some level an act of mercy. The way that you die in crucifixion is you suffocate as your as your body can't hold itself up any longer, your chest cavity collapses and you suffocate. Yeah. And so the breaking of the legs actually makes it so you can't hold yourself up anymore and so you you suffocate faster. Suffocate faster. So it's an act of mercy in that instead of taking a day or two yeah. days to slowly suffocate, you suffocate in a matter of hours. And also, what you're saying is exactly right. It is adding pain to what is excruciating pain already. It is adding humiliation to what is exceedingly humiliating already. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Romans used it that way in, in both of those ways. Yeah. No, I, I see how it could, you know, ultimately have some merciful effect about it. It just, why, why humans create these systems, mm-hmm. Bobby, I will be... Mm-hmm. A mystery forever. Mm-hmm. So when they come to Jesus, they see that he is already dead. So they don't need to break his legs, and they don't break his legs. Right. But why do they then pierce his side with a spear? And what on earth is happening with blood and water coming out? Yeah, the detail there. I mean, so on the, the plainest level, they need these guys to be dead so they can take them off the crosses before the Sabbath, which is also mm-hmm. the Passover, begins. Mm-hmm. And so they see that Jesus is dead, but it seems like we need to be sure that he's be really, really sure. dead. Mm-hmm. And that's true both, you know, in the narrative sense of the soldiers have a job to do and they need to make sure that the job has been done. It's also true in a theological sense of if we're going to make a claim about Jesus's resurrection, we need to be sure that he really was dead. And so I, the stabbing with the spear is meant to ensure both for the soldiers and for us mm-hmm. that Jesus is in fact dead. The pouring out of the water and the blood, on the one hand, I think there's just a biological sort of way of talking about that is like his his guts spilled out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we know that he's dead because the fluid contained in him. But you clearly also hear theological references in there. You know, Jesus has talked about being the source of living water, and here is Mm -hmm. water pouring out of his body. Yeah. And so you know, in the crucifixion, there is there is the living water made available. You also hear resonances of the Lord's Supper. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so 
the the blood here that pours out can be read that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know that John is, he's not insisting that we read it that way. He's not made that connection for us, but the symbolic reading of it is, is clearly available. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Can you talk a little bit about why the urgency about making sure these Jesus and his, and his two other companions are dead before sunset? I mean, I don't know if my answer is specific enough to be helpful other than that, you know, they're setting they're heading into this, you know, most holy of days where during which they need to be focused on the holiday. Mm-hmm. And they they I would imagine don't do burials during these, you know, during Shabbat or during these most holy days of Passover. And so they just want to get it done before that. Like it's a very yeah. sort of practical answer carried out in a really grotesque way. But Yeah. I think that's exactly right. There's also a prohibition in Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If someone is guilty of a capital crime and they are executed and you hang them on a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the tree but must bury it the same day because God's curse mm-hmm. is on those who are hanged. That's interesting. So the presence of the bodies could bring a curse upon the people because of the crime of the person who's being executed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you have the right to execute people, but you can't leave them exposed. Probably what Deuteronomy has in mind is not crucifixion, but like you kill yeah. someone and you hang their corpse from a tree to, as like to show you know, like a, a deterrent warning, for other people yeah. or something like that. You can do that. You you can humiliate them in that way, but you can't do it for very long. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know I said I didn't have questions about the bones, but I have one more question about the bones. The bones are so interesting. What? Again, I feel like all of the, throughout here, all the different places where John's like, here's where we're going to fulfill scripture are so random to me. <laughs> yeah. What scripture do you imagine is being fulfilled? None of his bones shall be broken. Are you thinking of the Passover sacrifice when you read that? Yeah, to me, that's the first place that my head goes. Like, why do we care about these legs? John spends a very long time insisting that Jesus's legs have not been broken. And he even goes on to say like, I somebody who knows told me this, and so you can believe it. Like yes. his legs weren't broken. Like he is very concerned about this. To me, I think that the the reference you're making to Exodus 12 in verse 46, "You shall not break any of the Passover lamb's bones," mm-hmm. is important here. We've talked about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has been portrayed as a Paschal Lamb. He's dying on the day of preparation when the Passover lambs are being sacrificed and slaughtered. And so in casting Jesus as the Passover lamb Mm -hmm. who sets people free from the power of death, one way of reading what's happening here is he is being very clearly, his bones have not been broken. Therefore, he is a suitable Passover lamb. I think John's trying to make that connection for us Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. clearly. Is is that how you read it or do you read it a different way? I think, I mean, I definitely see that in there. My... Study Bible also suggests maybe Psalm 34, verse 20. Mm -hmm. But there it's 
the fact that none of the the bones are broken of this, you know, the speaker in this in that psalm are a sign of God's protection. Yeah. And so, you know, in some ways, in the same way that you drew out how that the behavior of the soldiers doesn't exactly fit quite into any of the categories we might, you know, we might want to shove them into. Thinking about Jesus as being, his body being protected by God at the same moment that it's being completely humiliated. Yeah. Is is strange and maybe productively strange. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If I understand what you're saying, you know, if the if the point is the bones of the righteous will not be broken, mm-hmm. God tends to the righteous, then you think, well, okay, great. I'm glad my bones aren't broken. But also, I know, but I you're just being got, a little bit of a literalist here. <laughs> like some other crucified. stuff has happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I see the problem that you're pointing out, and I actually agree with you that it can be a productive problem in the sense that, you know, one way of reading that claim is that Jesus is being protected here. It's just not in a way that's available to you in the moment. So the yeah. the non-breaking of the legs is a sign of God's protection, which is going to be made manifest in two days on Easter morning when Jesus is resurrected. So just because it appears in this moment that God has not protected the righteous does not mean that that is actually mm. what is happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. Okay, I think this is kind of like a, like a big and maybe irritating question. <laughs> you ready to be irritated? These are my favorite Amy questions. I just overall, like throughout this passage and, and some of the passages leading up to it, and I, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, I find the use of scripture, Hebrew Bible scripture, really strange. Like that yeah. these are the particular texts that you would pull out and say this is what's been fulfilled, even when you're just pulling out like a half a verse yeah. of, of something. And I just, I wonder if you can offer any kind of lens through which we can understand what is happening with the reinterpretation or reapplication of the Hebrew Bible yeah. here? You know, Amy, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that is that is true is that of these Hebrew scriptures that get used in reference to Jesus, if you just read them in your in their own context without reference to Jesus, they're not really looking forward to anything like Jesus for the mm-hmm. most part. Every once in a while, you'll find one like in Every Isaiah once in a while, but elsewhere. those aren't the ones that they're even pulling out here. Like right. the, te- I feel like the text being pulled out are really pretty located somewhere else. Yeah, the way I think about it, and I don't know how helpful this is, I think about it like a midrashic practice, yeah. where you take two texts that seemingly are unconnected, and you say this word in this text reminds me of this word in this text. Mm-hmm. And the you know the rabbis do this mm-hmm. in really really creative and interesting ways. And then they weave, the language we talked about in graduate school was there's a third text that is sort of the weaving of these other two texts. I think of it that way, except one text is the Hebrew scripture. The other text is the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so this thing in Jesus's life reminds me of this thing that I read in the scripture. And even though they're not connected in any way, I can connect them and then weave a new idea so I read Jesus as sort of like a source for midrashic interpretation of Hebrew scripture that produces mm. something that isn't like Hebrew scripture itself, but has clear roots in it. I don't know if, if that makes any sense or if that's 
helpful or, or no, not. No, I'm so glad I asked that question. I thought you were just going to be like, oh, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's not what you said at all. <laughs> sometimes I'm grumpy that way. Not today. No, no. That, that is helpful. And for sure, the rabbinic tradition does this also. And sometimes it drives me crazy when they do it. Because I'm like, that is not what that text says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try on that idea. Jesus's life as a text. Mm-hmm. A source, a source, as a source yeah. to interact with. Oh, it's a text that has intertextual connections. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to try on that idea. Shall we read the rest of our passage, or is there anything else? I think, let's read the end. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That's pretty like chutzpahdik of this Joseph guy. (laughs) Yeah. Do we know anything about him? So we get reference to Joseph of Arimathea and the other Gospels and Matthew and Mark and Luke. So there seems to be some kind of memory, I, I think, that's being preserved here. A lot of times the people who are actually named in the text are people who continue to have some sort of significance. Mm. He is a, a Jewish leader and apparently a, somebody of some wealth and influence. So he can go to Pilate and say, hey, here's the thing I want to do. It's interesting that he's described as a, what was the language? A secret disciple? A secret disciple because of his fear of the Jews. So that that helps answer a question. Is this man, is he Jewish? Yes, he is Jewish and he's powerful and yeah. also is afraid of religious authorities. However, we want to understand being afraid of the Jews when you're a Jew. Yeah. The CEB there again gives the Jewish authorities, which yeah. I think is probably useful. He's... Mm-hmm. He is following Jesus secretly in his heart in ways that might be upsetting to his own religious community, mm-hmm. of which he is also a leader, it seems. And, and mm. Nicodemus is with him. That's interesting then to have Nicodemus with him because Nicodemus had that same struggle. Exactly. Yeah. And so here we've got Nicodemus. I love Nicodemus is back again uh, for the third time in John. And he's in a similar situation. He's, he seems to be sort of drawn to Jesus. He keeps showing up in the story. He's wanting to tend to his body. He doesn't feel somehow free to just be open about his yeah. interest in Jesus. And so we've got these two guys who are, I don't, I don't quite know whether to read John as like, these guys are followers of Jesus who follow in secret. Or <laughs> whether it's like, like, you can't be a follower of Jesus in secret. So like, come on, guys. I, I can't get a good reading of John here. What do you think he's... Like, what does John think of these guys? Yeah, is he lifting them up? Is like, hey, these guys are awesome. Or is he saying like, mm, they're doing the best they can, but that's not very good. That's such an interesting question. And I, I, don't, I don't see any clues in the text about yeah. it. I mean, it just seems... I guess I read them in a positive light because 
they because they afford dignity mm-hmm. to the body in a way that it was not afforded in its you know last yeah moments of life and and I have to imagine that's a positive thing in John in John's mind yeah you also get that notice that Nicodemus in verse thirty nine is the one who had at first come to Jesus at night, mm-hmm. but here he is trying to get Jesus buried in the broad daylight before the sun sets. Mm-hmm. And so if you read that metaphorically as the darkness of night and now he's out in the open, like maybe we read Nicodemus and then by extension also Joseph as sort of making their way out of the secret darkness into the light or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that it's like come to this this moment where like you – the, the time is now. Like the mm-hmm. if they want the body to come down and they want it to be treated, you know, in respectful ways, mm-hmm. they need to come out of secret, come out of night and yeah. and do that. And my goodness, they do. A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. Yeah. That's a lot of myrrh and aloes. That's a lot of myrrh and aloes. Yeah. Now I read in one of the commentaries I was reading that that's enough to bury 75 people. Wow. And so it is an overabundance with which Jesus is buried. And, you know, this is sort of overabundance befitting a person of significance, maybe even a king. Like maybe they're Mm -hmm. implicitly recognizing Jesus's kingship here in the way that they bury him. It reminds us a little bit of Mary who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume Mm -hmm. back in chapter 12, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. also anointed him for burial in that text. And so I think maybe we're, maybe we can read these, these two guys and Mary together in that in that sort of way. Yeah. I think they have not made it all the way, but we sort of seen this with characters along the way in this gospel. Like kind of there's a progression that people have. They get it as far as they can get it and then they kind of keep coming back around. Yeah. And I think Nicodemus anyway is is making that sort of move and I think I think maybe Joseph as well. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense and I think John overall has had some patience for that. You know, for people to sort of come in as they are and and they that I feel like this is a big this is a big move for them to, yeah, to, to yeah. take the body down and care for it. I agree. I agree. There are some people who read this as because they anointed his body so amazing, like yeah. excessively, they don't really believe his claim about resurrection. Like if you knew he was gonna just be there for forty eight hours, <laughs> like why would you give him so much attention, so many spices and perfumes? I myself am not persuaded by that argument. I think they are giving him a burial befitting his status. And it doesn't say one way or the other what they think about his resurrection. Maybe they do believe. Maybe they don't believe. Maybe they want to believe. But it's a pretty amazing thing to to believe. Okay, now I have a really remedial question. Has Jesus said, I'm going to be resurrected? So there's a text in John 18. I can't remember whether we read this or not. I don't think we did. Mm. In 1831 and following, Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and explains to them what's about to happen. And so in verse 33, after torturing him, they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise up. And then it says, but the 12 understood none of these words. The meaning of his message was hidden from them and they didn't grasp what he was saying. Mm -hmm. So we get this kind of dynamic that we see both in John and in the other gospels that Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to get crucified and resurrected. And they don't get it until after the resurrection. And then they say, oh, that's what he was talking about. Yeah. So jo- maybe we just put Joseph and Nicodemus in that category. Yeah. 
Although, they've can heard- you imagine? I'm sure if they skimped on the spices because they were like, eh, it only has to last two days, they yeah. would not have gotten a good legacy for that either. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. This way it'll be so fresh and so clean when he, you know. <laughs> yeah. So clean, clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm interested at the end here in that this, you know, very intentional note that there was this tomb where no one had ever been laid. Yeah. And because basically they were pressed for time. <laughs> yeah. They just put Jesus in there. Yeah. I mean, do does it seem to you significant that the tomb had never been used? Is that like theologically significant? Is Jesus like a squatter in someone else's <laughs> tomb? Like Yeah. How did Why are those details important here? Yeah, I mean, it sounds weird to modern ears, or at least to my ears, to say, like, I'm going to be buried in a coffin that no one has ever been <laughs> buried in before. Like, of course. But, you know, in Jewish practice in the first century, the tomb was sort of, you know, people were laid out and wrapped for, I think, for a year. Yeah, I think for a year. And then when what was left was bones, and the bones were gathered and put in the ossuary, and then somebody else could be buried in the same yeah. way. Yeah. So that's what this is saying, is that that... This is a pristinely new tomb. No one has ever been buried in there before. I read it in both the ways that you suggested, that this is something about this tomb has not been marred by death. And so uh, there's Mm -hmm. something there about impurity, I would think, but also about, you know, this is not a tomb that is a place of death. This is a tomb that is going to be a place of life. Mm. I also think the idea of Jesus being a squatter (laughs) is really interesting. I, I like that language for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what's happening. Jesus doesn't have any place to be buried. And so, like, Mm. thank goodness this guy has a place to bury him and it's close by and they can get it done. You know, it's like this whole thing is happenstance and impromptu and it's just people doing what they they have, offering what they have. And I think that says something important about the nature of Jesus and, you know, the fact that he came and dwelt among people, but he didn't really have a place among the people. And so he was reliant on other people's goodwill, even even Mm. in his death. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about Jewish burial practices and sort of Jewish like societies around burial practices that ensure that the deceased are, that their bodies are treated with dignity until yeah. the burial. And there, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of honor and discretion. And I don't know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, powerful thing sort of within the Jewish community to to look at the folks who are actually caring for the bodies and what they're doing and what that looks like. And so I think seeing it come up here is, is I don't know, beautiful seems like the wrong word, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know, seeing, seeing their care for the body of Jesus is really moving to me. I, I appreciate that connection so much, Amy. And it's a nice reminder that whatever the status of Joseph and Nicodemus vis-a-vis being followers of Jesus, they're being good Jews here. They're being and they're, good Jews. They're doing the things, respecting the, the, the dead and practice and having some tenderness and care in the way that their tradition tells them that they should. And so what, whatever else we might think about them. Yeah, yeah. That's really, that's really important. Well, that was a lot. It was a lot mm-hmm. reading up, like leading yeah. up all these weeks to that section and then to actually read through that section. And so I will ask you what we ask every time. What is feeling most pressing to you? 
I've really been drawn by that little detail in the text. I don't know if it's little, but the detail about the people gathered at the foot of the cross and the conversation that takes place Mm -hmm. among Mm -hmm. Jesus and the women and the beloved disciple. There's that moment in this really excruciating and painful text is such a beautiful moment. And the way we talked about that is, you know, Jesus is fully available to his mother and to the others who are there. He's loving them to the end, even as the empire is taking his life, his last actions are actions of love toward his community and making connections among his community members. I just think that's so beautiful. And, you know, if we, if we take that instruction, here's your son, here's your mother. Mm-hmm. And we think about what that means for a contemporary life is that we belong to each other in ways that are not simply defined by our biological connections or by our ideological connections, but these profoundly relational ways that are grounded in love for one another and for Christians ultimately in Jesus's love for us. And when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, and the way that he loves them is to love them fully and to the end, then here's the invitation, love one another fully and to the end. And in the midst of this horrifying thing that the empire is doing to Jesus, the, the ground of hopefulness is the love that these have for each other and then the love that we can have for each other too. We've talked a lot in the last few weeks about how cruel human beings can be and how horrible systems are in the Roman world and in our world. And it's all true. And this text is not pretending, like this text is a painful, painful text. And yet in the middle of it, there's this little moment of hope, this little moment of relationship, this little moment of love, which is possible mm-hmm. then and, and now. So that's where I'm finding, oddly, on Good Friday, after all of this, I'm finding a moment of like hope and beauty in, in that relational moment. Mm. Yes. No, I think that, I mean, I think that's just, it's just right on. And I think it's right on in you know, as, as you've described it for the Christian community and it is right on for the Jewish community. And, you know, there's finding connection to God in relationship to each other is, is so much messier (laughs) than, you know, going up to the top of a mountain and, you know, leading some life that you imagine to be holy without actually having to get in the whole messy, you know, brawl of humanity. But, but I love that that is not at all where this text, you know, is taking us. And I think the only other thing I would I would draw out that I think is actually related, although they're not related directly in the text, but, you know, we, we ended reading this, this passage on the care for Jesus's body. And, yeah. and as I mentioned, it, it has me thinking about the, I mentioned the Jewish burial societies, they're called the Hever Kadisha. And it's a group of people within a Jewish community. It could be a synagogue. It could be like a whole city that gets together and does it. Could you know? It could be any group of people, and they perform these mitzvot, these commandments around care for the body. And they're they're very detailed. I mean, there's the body can't be left alone from the time of death until the time of burial. So people take shifts overnight to sit with the body and read psalms or read you know something else. And then there's this ritual of washing that also has like the recitation of prayers along with mm-hmm. it and, you know, wrapping the body in a certain way for burial. And it's, 
it's considered one of the greatest meets vote because it cannot be repaid. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's, hmm. I, I've only done it once and it was absolutely surreal, like standing between two worlds and like I was not really in my body. And what mm. I remember, I think most pressingly was afterwards, I wasn't even really aware of how sort of out of sorts I was until I looked someone else in the eye And like, it was like, I could feel myself drop back into my body. And so that's how I connect it back to what you're saying is that like, we, we are the glue that holds, (laughs) that holds each other together, you know, in love and in life here. And, and also we have responsibilities to the dead. But I think, I think this text pulls those things all together in, in beautiful ways, as sad Mm -hmm. as it is. Yeah. That's lovely, Amy. Thanks for that. Next time, we are moving on to chapter 20 in the book of John, verses 1 through 18. We have gotten past the crucifixion and the death, and we get to move on to the resurrection. I feel prepared for the resurrection now. Like, sometimes I feel like like the resurrection just sort of happens and I was just living my life. That I feel like this time we've spent so much time talking about the events leading up that I feel like I'm kind of longing for Easter in a way that I don't always experience. That's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. All right, friend. Well, I will see you then. All right. See you next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us again next time for our Easter Sunday episode, reading John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Until then, keep on digging.